from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this edition. This may be the most important speech I've ever made. That was President Donald Trump yesterday providing an update on the investigation into the numerous election irregularities. We'll talk about it with Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks, who says he plans to challenge the upcoming Electoral College vote. And what's this with uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's apparent fixation with passing a marijuana bill, despite all the other pressing priorities? We'll talk about that. And the anti-conservative bias is so obvious with news outlets like CNN. I mean, have you ever thought about being a fly on the wall in CNN's morning meeting? I mean, just how blatant is their disdain for conservatives? Well, wonder no longer. James O'Keefe at Project Veritas has struck again. He was that fly on the wall. Neil McCabe, communications director for Project Veritas, has the details. Okay, this is reaching the absurd. But I'm going to tell you, it's not going to stop until the American people, and that's you, says enough. A Maryland pastor in his church building by himself was cited and threatened with a year in jail because he answered a knock at the door without a mask. Who was at the door and why were they there? The Reverend Dr. Dennis Jackman, Community United Methodist Church from Pasadena, Maryland, is here to explain. And I'm not the only one warning of the long-term consequences of this government overreach. Larry Taunton, author and executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation, provides an insightful look and warning, warning about what is happening in America. The website, TonyPerkins.com, if you uh, miss anything on your way home or you want to catch up on some uh, previous editions, it's all archived at TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Parler, the conservative alternative to Twitter, it's at T. Perkins. All right, and by the way, Merry Christmas. It's December. Merry Christmas. Yesterday, President Trump did his best, despite a media blackout, to explain what he is doing and why. As president, I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. That is why I am determined to protect our election system, which is now under coordinated assault and siege. Now, he's not alone in the fight. My next guest says he will challenge the Electoral College votes when Congress meets on January the 6th. Joining me now is Congressman Mo Brooks. He represents the 5th Congressional District of Alabama. Congressman, welcome back to the program. My pleasure. All right. uh, You're going to challenge this, but before we get into it, I want to set the stage because this is not a theoretical issue with you. You actually have had experience with voter fraud. I have. uh, In one of my early elections, uh, I was trying to break the dam. I would have been the only Republican elected in the northern third of the state of Alabama to the state legislature. At that time, Democrats dominated the state legislature 136 to 4. And in 25 percent of the voting machines in my legislative district, the Democrats rigged the voting machines so that all votes cast by voters would register except for those for Mo Brooks. So 25 candidates on the ballot other than me, the machines work for them. 
did not work for Mo Brooks in 25% of the voting machines in my district. That was 11 out of 45 machines. At one box where I was extraordinarily strong, none of the five voting machines would register votes for Mo Brooks. Registered for everybody else, but not Mo Brooks. And it got to the point where, fortunately, the poll workers decided to make periodic announcements that if you want to vote for Mo Brooks for the state legislature, go sign your name on that sheet on the wall. So you lost your secret ballot right, but at least you still could vote for me if I was your preference. Fortunately, and somewhat surprisingly in retrospect, we still won despite being a target of election theft uh, with 57% of the vote. Now, what, what was the problem? They couldn't spell Mo in the machine or what? I mean, what, We what had was the... uh, lever machines where you'd flip a little lever, a butterfly right, lever, and when you yep, pulled it down, an X would appear next to the name that you were voting right. for. Right. And you could vote for everybody on the ballot except for Mo Brooks. The Democrats had rigged it so that the lever next to my name would not work. Further, if you pulled the straight ballot lever, it would put an X in front of everybody's name who was a Republican except for Mo Brooks. So that's how they rigged them. Now, what was the outcome in that case? I know you won the race, but w- were you able to press that forward and see anything accomplished there? Well, the Democrats controlled the judicial system. They controlled the investigative bodies that were in charge of it. And basically, they made up some flimsy excuse about it being jostled in transit. Kind of curious that only my lever in different precincts across the legislative district were the only ones affected. But that was the explanation they give, gave uh, after our own investigation over a period of time. We pretty much narrowed it down to the one Democrat who was responsible for this election theft effort. But, you know, often it's only one Democrat here in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, or wherever, who can influence a tremendous number of votes. Right. And I'll just say, I think I've mentioned this on the program before, but I had experience in that as well. When I was in the state legislature in Louisiana in 1996, I was the campaign manager for U.S. Senate race in which uh, there was voter fraud, uh, we had signed affidavits. We knew it. The race was lost by about 5,200 votes out of a million and a half cast. Uh, the problem was with the laws in Louisiana at the time did not provide enough time to challenge the outcome, and the uh, the Senate Republicans didn't have the stomach for the fight. But the, the silver lining there was we went back and in the subsequent year of the legislature, we have reformed our election laws in Louisiana, and we've not had major cases of voter fraud uh, since then as a result of in one. Uh, and in fact, this is an issue that you've brought up is that we uh, required back then in 1997, we changed the law to require identification for voting registration and, uh, and, and to vote. And that's one of the issues you've brought up. You say there are systemic problems that have facilitated this fraud. There are a number of systemic flaws in our election system that the general public is not aware of. One in particular is the 1993 National Voter Registration Act that the Democrats forced through Congress when they had the House, the Senate, and the White House that in turn makes it illegal, repeat, makes it illegal for our voter registrars to request proof of citizenship from illegal aliens or other foreigners who are non-citizens of the United States of America, meaning if an illegal alien or another non-citizen comes into a voter registrar's office and it demands to be allowed to vote, to be registered to vote, there's nothing the voter registrar's 
can do to prevent it because they no longer have the ability to require proof of citizenship, either a birth certificate, perhaps a driver's license that shows you were born in the United States of America, uh, perhaps your passport. Um, you can't ask for any of that. The Democrats made it illegal, and that opens the door for a minimum of 11 million illegal aliens, if you believe the 2010 census figures, to as many as 22, 23 million illegal aliens, if you believe a 1918 study by Yale, uh, who now can go to the voter registrar's office, ask to be registered to vote, and the voter registrars are powerless to stop them due to the conduct of the Socialist Democrats who, in their quest for political power, are willing to support illegal voting and election theft. It's amazing. Very few things you can do in society without presenting identification. You can't get on the plane, can't cash a check, uh, but you can uh, cast what is one of the most sacred uh, duties or engage in one of the most sacred duties that we have as Americans, and that is to vote. I mean, I would think, you know, I would think everybody would agree that, look, we need to make sure that you have a right to vote and that that right is protected. And if you don't have the right to vote, you shouldn't be participating. Absolutely. Uh, in my judgment, this particular example that we're talking about, in my judgment, probably resulted in Joe Biden get a minimum of hundreds of thousands of votes spread across America, more likely in the millions. And what makes it even more egregious is that Joe Biden, on the October 22nd, national presidential debate solicited the support of that illegal alien block vote by promising to them, quote, within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people, end quote. Now, the political motivation behind that was quite clearly to encourage illegal aliens and other non-citizens to vote, and if you elect me, Joe Biden, President of the United States, I'm going to give you that amnesty and citizenship you want to hell with the American people. So, Mo Brooks, what do you plan on doing on January the 6th? Well, I am persuaded by a number of systemic flaws in our election system that if only lawful votes cast by eligible American voters were counted, that Donald Trump won the popular vote and won the Electoral College by a sizable margin. As such, I'm going to exercise my right and duty under Article 1, Sections 4 and 5, along with Article 2 and the 12th Amendment of the United States Constitution, to seek to force an election contest in the United States Congress. Now, a lot of people don't understand this. The Supreme Court is not the final say on any federal election. The United States Congress and the United States Constitution is the judge and jury that determines whether a contested House race, contested Senate race, or a contested presidential race goes to candidate A or candidate B. And I want to force a vote on the House floor to reject the Electoral College vote submissions of those states who have such badly flawed election systems that their returns are unworthy of respect by the rest of the people of the United States of America, focusing first and foremost on Pennsylvania, followed by Georgia and others. So how will that vote take place? What, what does that look like? Well, the process is also uh, set forth in federal statutes. Um, 
if myself and a senator join to object, then that forces a recess of the joint session of Congress that receives the Electoral College vote submissions from the states. We then have a maximum of two hours to debate any particular challenge to an Electoral College vote submission by a state. And then you have a House floor vote and a Senate floor vote on whether to accept or reject the submission of that state's Electoral College votes. In the Senate, majority rules. In the House, it's an open question as to whether it is a majority of the state delegations to Congress that governs that vote, or if it's a majority of the 435 members. If it's 435 members, then Democrats prevail. If, however, it is state delegations, as is required under the 12th Amendment to the United States Constitution, when the House elects the President of the United States, well, Republicans control 27 state delegations in the House. Democrats control 20. That gives us a decided edge. Going to be very fascinating uh, to watch. Mo Brooks, thanks so much for uh, joining us, and thanks for fighting for the truth. If it's there, it needs to be uncovered. We need to know that we can have confidence in our system. Folks, be watching. It's going to be interesting. All right, don't go away uh, when we come back. You ever thought about being a fly on the wall at uh, maybe someplace like CNN? What do they talk about in the morning, you know? What do they say about conservatives? Well, you're going to find out next. Project Veritas. Veritas. They were there. James O'Keefe was that fly on the wall. We're going to talk to uh, the Project Veritas Communications Director, Neil McCabe, next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I'd finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. 
Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Merry Christmas and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us at the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right. I mean, in case there was any confusion, CNN has been a mouthpiece for the laugh for, well, I would say a long time. Now, I've not always been critical of, uh, of CNN nor the media in general. In fact, I was reminded this the other day and uh, in a tribute to my late friend, Bishop Harry Jackson, who, by the way, we have a memorial service for him tomorrow. He passed away recently. He and I, back in uh, 2007 or eight, wrote a book called Personal Faith, Public Policy. And actually, in that book, I defended CNN uh, and, and the media in general, uh, because there, there was a time when the media did provide a, well, I mean, knowing many of these media personalities, they have their worldview, and it's generally opposite of what most of us would have, as we would describe a biblical worldview. And I, I was a reporter. Those of you who listen often, may, I've talked that from, about that from time to time. 25 years ago, I was a television reporter and worked with reporters, and I think they provided a good service. Um, but there has been a distinctive change in the media, and it happened... And I'm not just saying this. I mean, I've watched it. I've been a part of it. I've seen it happen. It began with the election of Barack Obama. And there became a hard shift to the left. And CNN, and I would say they used to be the most objective. And I used to actually be on there quite frequently back. I mean, this has been 10, 12 years ago. But they have decidedly taken a leftward Lurch, uh, MSNBC is over the cliff. But if you, I mean, you can tell this just by watching, okay? You can watch it and you can see that. But just in case, just in case, Project Veritas um, is doing their part to expose the anti-conservative bias of CNN. I want to play a clip. Uh, this is James O'Keefe. In a, uh, well, you'll, you'll hear it and I'll explain it after you. Bobby, play that clip. Hey, Jeff Zucker, are you there? Hey, yes. this is James O'Keefe. Uh, we've been listening to your CNN calls for basically two months, uh, recording 
everything. Um, just wanted to ask you some questions, if you have a minute. Um, do you still feel you're the most trusted name in news? Because I have to say, from what I've been hearing on these phone calls, I don't know about that. I mean, we got a lot of recordings that indicate you're not really that independent of a, of a journalist. Um, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, your comments. Um, so everybody, in light of that, I think what we'll do is we'll we'll set up a, a, a new system and we'll uh, we'll be back with you. We'll do the rest of the call uh, a little bit later. Uh, so end of call. So what happened is that uh, someone tipped off James O'Keefe, who does he's quite frankly he I think he's amazing what he's able to pull off. So he, he, he gets tipped off to, and we do the same thing. We have a morning call uh, with our team headquartered here in Washington, but we have people around the country. And so we have a, a morning call. We discuss the same type things in terms of messaging and what's happening. And, uh, of course, I'm always thinking about who might be listening. So they, uh, for two months, Project Veritas is recording these messages or recording these meetings, listening in. And so finally... Uh, James O'Keefe hits the uh, the mute button and unmutes himself and says, hey, Jeff Zucker, are you there? Uh, this is James O'Keefe. We've been listening to your CNN calls for basically two months recording everything. Just wanted to ask you some questions if you have a minute. I can only imagine what was going through Zucker's mind. Uh, he quickly got off uh, the call. Now, they're beginning to trickle out uh, what uh, Project Veritas, and I, I think we're may have uh, their communication director on here a minute. We've got an issue getting connected with him. They plan on releasing this over the next couple of months, bits of bit, bits and pieces showing how blatantly anti-bias they are. In fact, uh, they go after, their, their hosts go after uh, Lindsey Graham because he was helping to legitimize uh, Trump's campaign fraud claims. Uh, and they were very clear in talking about not giving a platform to the president to talk about the challenge to the election. In fact, uh, you know, as I played that clip from yesterday, the president had a 46-minute speech that he gave from the White House explaining what they were doing and why. Complete media blackout. Folks, I hope you, uh, I, I hope this isn't lost on you what we see happening. I'm talking about the president of the United States. All right, so you may disagree with him. You may think, uh, well, you know, he's just trying to, you know, whatever. He's the president of the United States, and the media is shutting him off, not allowing him to raise these issues. I mean, if he says something, oh, he's just, you know, he's uh, baseless allegations. Well, they don't give him an opportunity to present the facts. And so if they would do this to the president of the United States, not just to mention the media, but social media as well, what does that uh, portend for conservatives in the future? You need to be thinking about that. I am. Uh, And I'm grateful for uh, Christian radio. Uh, Now, that's not to say they're not going to come after it, but they certainly will. They have in the past, and they probably will again. But I'm grateful for the networks we're on, Bot Radio Network, uh, CNS, thankful for AFR, for these networks that make it possible for Christians to get information from a biblical perspective and to get it unfiltered by the liberal media that is anti-Christian. 
anti-conservative. So anyway, it's going to be interesting to watch Project Veritas as they um, roll out this information of what they gained by being a fly on the wall at CNN's morning meetings. I, I really do like the work that uh, James O'Keefe does. He's, uh, he's, he's pretty bold. All right, when we come back, this is, th- th- is going to be, some of you aren't going to believe it. That's why I'm going to have the pastor on the program to tell us about it. Pastor in his church by himself, knock at the door. He goes to the door, opens the door. He's greeted with a threat, with a citation and a threat of a year in jail because he was not wearing a mask. Who was at the door and why were we there? Why were they there? We'll talk about it next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, my next guest, the Reverend Dr. Dennis Jackman of Community United Methodist Church in Pasadena, Maryland, was in his church by himself, I assume working in his office, preparing his sermon for Sunday or something like that. There's a knock at the door. So he gets up. He goes to see who's trying to get into his church. He opens the door, and he's greeted with a citation Uh, And um, the threat of jail, the reason he wasn't wearing a mask. He was the only person in the church. Nobody else was there. 
So who was at the door and why were they there? Joining me now is the Reverend Dr. Dennis Jackman. Uh, Pastor Jackman, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you very much, and I appreciate you taking your time. Um, yeah, I have a private office, and the secretary has a private office, just for clarification. And she also has responsibilities in different part of the building. And so oftentimes I am only in this part of the building. It's isolated. And um, they, we have a doorbell, and the doorbell rang. And usually at the first ring, she will take care of it. It rang two or three times. And so I went to the door. And what happens is we often have people who stop by the church for food assistance, and I think the day that this occurred, it was on a Tuesday, and what I do is go to the door, tell people they need to go around to the back of the building. They'll be uh, receive food, uh, and they don't get out of their car. It will be put in their trunk, and there's no contact. Um, and so when this person appeared and um, sort of identified themselves with the health department, I invited them in, and they proceeded to... Um, be very authoritarian, uh, telling me that I had violated uh, six feet, being six feet apart, although there's no way to get into the building through the door because it's a door, push door that locks, so only if I hold the door open will it stay open. And, and then he proceeded to tell me I wasn't wearing a mask. I wasn't expecting anybody to come in the building, I, and I immediately left him in, from the lobby and went to my office and picked up the mask that I keep on my desk and um, went and rejoined him. So why was he there? He had received an anonymous, uh, um, or the health department had received an anonymous complaint. Um, I've never been clear on what the complaint was. I heard somewhere else that the, it was because we, there were people high-fiving um, and fist-bumping in the, the sanctuary. Um, I have a fairly older type congregation. I can't imagine an 80, 90 years old high-fiving somebody and, and or, for that matter, fist-bumping. We, we have, you know, tried to discourage any type of physical contact in our worship at all. Um, just to, as a precaution, as you come in the sanctuary or into the lobby, we have uh, alcohol pumped there and mask, and you go in further into the vestibule, and again, there there's... Uh, alcohol uh, dispensers on either side as you go into the sanctuary. Um, We encourage social distancing. Um, Pews are marked off. I mean, we're conducting a 9 o'clock outside service even last Sunday when it was 32 degrees so people could sit in their cars and listen to the service. So we have really tried to to comply with all the uh, precautions for uh, the COVID. In addition, we I had there have been a number of folks from this uh, church family that I have said, please don't come to church. Um, I have mm-hmm. a lady that's 103 years old, and I think it it would be ill-advised to to come and, and just because uh, we want to protect her health. Well, and you're the pastor, you're the shepherd of the flock, and I would think that you are going to look out after your people and do what is best for them. Isn't that what pastors do? Well, uh, that would be my hope, and that's certainly my intent, you know. And we also want to to um, comply with, with uh, reasonable ex- expectations. But I mean, it, you know, it's it's almost like we're in a uh, 
a Nazi Germany in 1938 where you have anonymous people uh, making uh, anonymous charges. Um, and, you know, that then we, and by the way, the health department has hired additional people in Anne Arundel County so that they can go out and check better on uh, report, anonymous reports. So we so have doc, people. Go ahead. What do you plan on doing, Dr. Jackman? Well, we're, there's not a whole lot more that we are, I mean, we haven't done much different. Uh, they wanted some, uh, we had a, a, a whiteboard in the uh, vestibule telling people to wear a mask. We put up paper signs on all the doors. Um, I mean, there's not much else. I, I mean, we've been trying to comply from the very beginning. Um, in the citation, uh, well, the gentleman that was here threatened, told us he was coming back, um, and he made that very clear. He would be back in three or four days to check on us, and um, he indicated that he he could shut down the church. Do you? Um, let me ask you. We're, we're we're up against a break, but do you think that ultimately is what some are trying to do? Is just to intimidate the church to close down? Absolutely, and and all people of faith. Yeah. Well, thank you for not doing it. Thank you for continuing to meet and to shepherd your people and to meet their needs and not giving in to the bullying nature of some in government. We need more pastors that are willing to to do the best they can to meet the needs of their people, take reasonable precautions, but not be intimidated. So, Dr. Jackman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, and you have a blessed day. All right, you too. He's right. He's right. I think ultimately this is about... Some wanting to shut down the churches. But this snitching, this snitching, what's this about? Larry Taunton here is is uh, with us next to talk more about this and the history of this type of government behavior. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through his word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out his meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, Critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. 
To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look in the five and ten Listening once again I'm Tony Perkins and this is Washington Watch, the website TonyPerkins.com Okay, I've got a I've got a poll question for you, and I want to go ahead and give it to you now because I want to I want you to to weigh in so that um, I can give you the response before the end of the program. And it, it ties into what um, Dr. Jackman was just talking about about um, the, the government. And I'm gonna I'm gonna play a clip of the governor of Maryland here in just a moment, actually calling on people to snitch on their family and friends and neighbors. Um, when, when I, and this is not new. It's actually been something that's been occurring here for, for a while. But when I saw this, I, I thought, you know what? That, that sounds almost like what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 12. And in verse 53, he says, They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And it was about Jesus. It was about him. It was about following him. And and I, I, I what we see is government interjecting this division by encouraging people to tell on other people who are violating these coronavirus restrictions, not wearing a mask or going to church or violating the do not gather orders. So let me ask you this. Do, do you believe that this is an example of what Jesus warned of? Do you, do, do you think I'm off base or do you agree with me? Text the word radio to 53445. Text the word radio to 53445 and, uh, and let me know what you think. Okay, as we were talking about in the previous segment, a Maryland health official was uh, showed up at the door, knocked at the door, pastor came there, didn't have a mask on. He threatened to put him in jail, fine him, cite him. Um, this stuff has gone too far. In fact, you, you remember what the... The, the pastor said, he said, this is more like Nazi Germany in 1938. Well, joining me to talk more about this, the executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, Larry Taunton. Uh, Larry has insight on oppressive regimes as a graduate student of Russian history and Marxism in the 1990s. Also the author of a newly released book, Around the World, in more than 80 days, discovering what makes America great and why we must fight to save it. Larry, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony, how are you? 
Good, good. I, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the program because you validate what I've been saying. I've been warning about this, that there is a there are at best unintended consequences. At worst, there is an underlying agenda here. Uh-huh. Um, am I right? Yes, uh, I think so, Tony. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, six or eight weeks ago, we released a little video that you can find on YouTube. It's very short. Uh, it is uh, called uh, Understanding Socialism, Marxism, and the Radical Left's Agenda for America. And we put that out there to try to help people understand where this train is headed and so that they can understand uh, what Black Lives Matter is and critical race theory and all of this. And one of the things that I stated in that video before any of this started coming down the pike is I said that, that, a, that a key feature of socialist uh, totalitarian or fascist regimes, and there's a lot of what we're seeing is actually fascism, but in any case, a central feature of that is that it makes a tyranny of community. And Christianity does exactly the opposite. It creates community that is loving, that is supportive, that is encouraging. Um, but, but socialism, totalitarian regimes do exactly the opposite, and this is the way they do it, the way the Maryland governor is calling on people to rat each other out. Well, let, let me let me stop you right there because I want to play a clip uh, of him so people won't think we're putting words in his mouth. Uh, Bobby, play that clip. The Maryland State Police is also ramping up their COVID prevention hotline where members of the public can call to report unsafe uh, facilities and activities or violations of public health orders. Marylanders who see unlawful behavior are encouraged to report it. Is that what you're talking about, Larry? Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let me give you a real practical uh, modern-day example. Um, I lived in France for a time, um, you know, um, uh, quite recently. And what you discovered in these small communities um, in, in France, these villages, uh, is that there's often very deep-rooted animosities between families. And you you stumble into it, you're an American, and you invite this family over and that family over, and you discover they hate each other, and you discover it all goes back um, to World War II and to one side that was collaborating um, with the Germans and another side that was part of the resistance, and one family ratting out the other, and uh, old grandpa you know, got put against a wall and shot. Uh, and, and these things are extremely common. Uh, in fact, I tell this story uh, in, in the book you very kindly mentioned, Around the World in More Than 80 Days. Uh, and it's because um, the fascists, in this case, the Germans, they encourage people, listen, we'll pay you to tell on your neighbors. And uh, uh, totalitarian regimes do this, socialist regimes do this, because it, it, it accomplishes two things. First of all, it creates a sense of omnipresence of the government. You're fearful of saying anything. I mean, we've also seen in this country where where um, children are being quizzed on what their parents are and aren't doing. You know, so this is this is exactly what they did in the Soviet Union. So you're afraid to say anything against the regime in your own home because your children might accidentally, you know, cough that information up and. Uh, you know, something happens from that. But another thing it does is, just as you were pointing out in your introduction to this segment, is it divides the people, and thus it insulates the government, uh, that is to say, protects the government from the people. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, this past weekend in Oregon, 
the Oregon Knights of Columbus had a, a protest about the restrictions that the governor had placed on churches there, limiting attendance to 25 percent of capacity or 100 people, whichever was less. And there was uh, at the this rally, about 400 people showed up, most of them Vietnamese Catholics um, that were there. And one of them, uh, Young Tran, a refugee from Vietnam and a member of Our Lady of uh, uh, La Vang Parish in Happy Valley, said, quote, it happened in our former country, a communist and a socialist country, and it is starting to happen here now. Mm-hmm. It's very obvious to those who have seen it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it really is, Tony. I mean, uh, you know, I've seen this all over, you know, um, uh, social media and elsewhere, that the things I'm saying, the things that you're saying, uh, that they think are alarmist. But the, the only sample I can come up with, if you bear with me for a moment, it goes something like this. I recall reading Lewis and Clark's journals, and when they got uh, into the Midwest, they encountered the Sioux Indian who warned them of a kind of bear that will track you down and kill you. Well, they dismissed this as nonsense. They used bow and arrows. We've got guns, and we've shot and killed black and brown bears. Well, then they encountered the grizzly bear, and they discovered that what they were warning about was true. And uh, I think that, that what we're seeing here is a very naive element within American society. I'm not even talking about the radical left. I'm talking about those on our own team um, who they are so ignorant, historically ignorant, um, that what you're warning of, it's like you're telling them about a, a, a grizzly bear, but they have no framework for understanding what you're talking about. And so they dismiss it as utter nonsense. There, there, I, my time in, in public policy and, and as a lawmaker was, I, I began to quickly see the, the law of unintended consequences, uh, which is, is very real. Um, it's a theory, but it's also uh, very prominent when it comes to government because it uh, it occurs when there's an impulsive emotional decision that is made that unintentionally creates more problems than it solves. And there's a lot of examples of that in our in our public policy uh, in this country in uh, other countries. And so I think I, I do think there are some who are seizing upon this opportunity to drive um a Marxist agenda, but I would say they're probably in the minority. I think the most most of them are in the category you just talked about. I think they're uh, they, they may be well intended, but they're naive. Uh, they don't understand the long term consequences of these decisions, and and I think it's um, I, I think it's past time we sound the alarm on this and we 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 say whoa mm-hmm. far enough. I mean, here, here's this, and, and my listeners here are going to get tired of me saying this, but I, I'm on a plane three or four times a week. I was on a plane earlier this week, plane seats about 135 <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah, every seat on the plane was full. And, and, and I was on that plane longer than I am in most church services. The Pentecostal churches set aside. They're a little longer. Um, and I'm touching people. I mean, they're, the, the person next to me is rubbing my elbow. Um, you can't move without hitting someone. <laughs> there is a lot more space in a church, but yet we can't go to church. We can't in some places. In some places, you can't go to church. And then you've got governors saying you can't get together as a family for Thanksgiving or Christmas. But you can sit on an airplane with 150 strangers, and that's okay. Something's not right. 
Yeah, no, I think Americans need to resist this. Um, you know, we've come up with a little idea that uh, that I'm calling the lockdown holiday, huh? uh, hashtag lockdown holiday. And basically what we're calling on people to do is saying, look, uh, this is unconstitutional. You have the right of assembly. This is right in the Bill of Rights. And um, uh, what people need to do is to simply say, look, um, I'm going to do what I would normally do here. And by that, we're not telling people that the virus is a hoax. We're not telling them to, to do silly you things. Know, but, that, but, but let me say that that's the first thing that those on the other side say, oh, they're deniers. They're virus yeah. deniers. And, and we're not denying it. I mean, I've been very clear in this program. I had the virus. I was in bed for three days with it. I, you know, I know it's real. Um, but still, I think it goes back to your, your point. We should be the custodians of our well-being and our family. And, and we had a family reunion this past Saturday. And we, those that were had underlying health issues, we encouraged them to stay home, and we Zoomed in with them. But um, dozens and dozens of other people came, and we had a great time together. And that was our choice. We took the risk, just as I took the risk of getting on that airplane. But it is my decision, and it should be my decision alone. Correct. I mean, listen, if tomorrow uh, the government said, look, no one is allowed to drive. And, of course, they obviously just done this in Los Angeles, but no one is allowed to drive um, because we're going to save lives. And you tweet out, you go on your radio program and you say, look, it's your car, it's your liberty, it's your choice. People, obviously, they're going to be those who are going to say people are going to die because of you. Tony. I mean, the reality is that life has risks. And we know now what the mortality rate of, um, of this virus is. And we know that it uh, is generally uh, uh, those who die from it is from comorbidity. So with my own Thanksgiving, right. uh, we had loads of people over. Um, but we made it very clear, you make your own choice. You make your own right. choices about masks and social distancing. If you're frightened, you stay home. My mother, who's a diabetic and who's elderly, she stayed home. And we, we applauded that decision. We felt yeah. she probably should. Given, given her age and, and health conditions. But the reality is we're seeing lives destroyed. We're seeing particularly the, the, the decent, hardworking, blue-collar workers whose lives are being annihilated in this. And those are the people who will tell you they're ready to go to work. And they'll assume the risk. Yeah, and, and not only those, but a lot of the elderly people that we say we want to protect have been locked away in these uh, nursing homes or secluded. Horrible. And, and, and it is. It is. Yeah, and just, well, and, uh, you know, I, I just say this anecdotally. Uh, my sister-in-law, she runs a nursing home in Texas, and she says that, that um, uh, the coronavirus is killing her patients indirectly, and she says it is heartbreaking because yeah. these people have been um, prevented from seeing family um, for months and months on end. And I wave at them from a window, they're desperately lonely, and they're, they're dying of loneliness, quite literally. Right, they And, are. Uh, you know, I had an 80-year-old grandmother tell me recently she has a great-granddaughter she hasn't seen, and she says, um, you know, I don't know how much longer I have to live, but if I, I am going to see her, and if in seeing her I get something that kills me, so be it. But I intend to see her before I leave. Well, I think earth. people, I mean, look, in the initial stages when we didn't have a lot of information, it was one thing uh, to step yep. back for a moment. But we're now, you know, 10 months into this. We're going into a second year. And I think it's time that we, 
as individual Americans, number one, exercise our rights and freedoms, but also exercise the responsibility to do what is uh, best for us and for our families. Larry Taunton, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Always great to talk with you. Hey, good to be with you, Tony. Take care. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. And, folks, I promise to give you the uh, the results of the poll. And um, 96% of you said, yes, you believe that Jesus, when he was talking about the division in families, that this is a, re- this is a reflection of that. 4% said no. Um, I, I do think, you know, I'm not saying it's all that way, but when we look at these things around us, we need to look at them through the lenses of Scripture. And I'm going to, again, encourage you, do what is best for you and for your family. Keep your family safe and those that are at risk. You know, do your best to protect them. But look, we've got to live our lives, and, and we must not allow governments to shut down our churches. And if we can, if uh, 150 people can pack a plane, there's no reason we can't fill the pews in our churches on Sunday mornings. And, and, and until this, and I'm not against people flying and against airplanes. I'm all for that. I'm just saying there should be equal treatment. In fact, religious freedom is a fundamental freedom. Flying on a plane is not. All right, folks, out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.